0: Welcome to the Sustainability Research Pod, a podcast where you hear about applied research into education and sustainability. This podcast is brought to you by members of the Sustainability Research Group hosted at London South Bank University. This episode is a recording from the Sustainability and Climate Action Conference hosted at London South Bank University in November 2020. This episode is titled The Impact and Influence of the Fashion World on Sustainability and the Climate Emergency. A panel discussion with Aja Barber, Paula Maz Perry and Amanda Johnston.
1: My name is Neil hudson Basing. Delighted to introduce this evening's uh, panel to you. Um, I'm the Corporate Events Manager at London South Bank University, working with colleagues um, like my colleague Ronkey um, and other colleagues from across LSBU to deliver this event series. Um, we've got nearly 600 people signed up um, from, from Africa, North America, South America, Asia, Australia, all across Europe, all across the UK. It's brilliant to see um, and fantastic. To, so many people have, uh, have tuned in. Um, two principles of the conference are myth busting and practical takeaways um, it's it is about action here um, this is not an academic conference um, we are we we like to, to bridge the gap between academia and practice and our range of speakers really reflect that and i'm delighted to have uh, such a fantastic uh, selection of speakers here um, in our in our panel discussion curated by my colleague Ron Key, who's the course director for our fashion uh, courses here at lsbu um, and now i'll hand over to ronki to introduce our panel thanks everyone enjoy
2: thank you Neil thank you so much um hi guys hi 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 welcome to a lovely evening um we're going to keep it quite nice and relaxed and and have a really lovely conversation with three fantastic people who I'm excited to welcome So thank you all for for joining myself and panel members. So today I'd like to welcome some of the most inspirational names within the sustainable fashion community. Um, Paola Misipi, please excuse me if I haven't pronounced your surname correctly and I'm sure you'll correct me as well. Um, Aja Barber and also- Aja. Aja Barber. Aja Barber. Thank you for correcting me. Um, I know the feeling too much <laughs> with my name as well and also amanda johnston thank you all for taking your time and um, to come to our virtual platform um, of lsbu our conversation today centers around the impact and influence of the fashion world and sustainability in climate emergency so i'd like to start by opening our platform up and we're going to be talking to you um, individually to to begin with and then we're going to have a combined discussion together So I'd like to start um, with an introduction to starting with Paola. Um, Hi Paola, we've uh, had the pleasure of uh, meeting each other previous to this event. You were very, very um, generous in your time last year and worked with our students and our students produced a fantastic campaign for your brand. Um, And for people who don't know uh, much about who you are and what your brand represents i'm just going to give a little short outline but please i want you to to go for it and and tell the audience um a bit more about um miyamoko um and again please correct me if my pronunciation <laughs> isn't correct so paula your brand miyamoko i would say is one of the leading uk sustainable brands um, that is out there at the moment and founded in 2019 you've been recognized for a a multitude of awards including um, a leadership award and you've also been recognized next to some of the leading fashion brands such as Stella McCartney Outland Denim to name just a few and have been recognized within leading fashion magazines such as Vogue um alongside Vivian Westwood GQ the list goes on um and not just that you've also been recognized for your work of changing lives and brand to watch by industry awards and shortlisted by Vogue Italia for Eco Talent Scouting and Vogue USA. Woof, that's a lot, (laughs) that's a lot and actually pretty damn impressive, if I may say so myself, because your brand is what I would class as still quite a young baby and still growing, but you've managed to be so successful and so fast and that is such an inspiration. So a huge congratulations. Um, but what I'd like to do is kind of start from the beginning and go back to talking to you about the kind of the foundations of how you started Miyamoko and also why you started such a fantastic sustainable brand that is today and wanting to really establish the roots in Africa as well. So handing over to you a little bit there.
3: Yeah, thank you, Ronki. So um, let me first say I'm a uh, London South Bank University alumna. So it's always great to be back. I did my master's in um, international development there. So I am a failed uh, international development uh, person. So Mm -hmm. I tried very hard and didn't do very well at it, (laughs) um, mostly because I have zero patience for large organizations and I'm more of a kind of ends on type person. And so I kind of ended up going and doing my own thing. but, but yeah, um, and let me so You've done great with my name. No one gets Paola, right. You did, so thank you for that. Um, somehow the two vowels seem to confuse people, but you did a great job. The brand is actually called Mayamiko, um, which is a um, Chichewa word from uh, the main language spoken in Malawi, which is a, a country in um, southern Africa, and it means praise in the local language. So just kind of to give you a little bit of background about that. So I'll try and keep it short. I can rant on for a long time. So stop me when, uh, you know, when it's too much. But um, <laughs> I, um, so like I say, I'm a failed international um, development person. I um, was working in a number of uh, countries in Africa in the early 2000s and ended up doing quite a lot of work in Malawi um spending four or five years going backwards and forwards, working with international, uh, with local um, organization and the ministry of education and then the ministry for um, women and child development and really the origin of Miami was there we started off as a charity working with um, essentially the local community to mm. see how we could support um, local needs so um, I started it working with a um, A lady called Kate Kainja, that at the time was uh, working at the Ministry for Women and Child Development, and had a real clear sense of what women were telling her that they needed, and what they felt they needed was um, vocational skills that allowed them to earn a living in a way that was flexible and um, compatible with their, you know, other commitments. So whether it was looking after children, looking after family, doing other things, and and so really that's that's where we started. So I guess becoming a brand came later so for a a good amount of years we essentially operated as a a charity providing vocational skills to help women empower themselves Um, so um, the, the sort of brand came in when we did particularly well at training women in tailoring and sewing which was a skill that they wanted and felt was valuable and you know they they became really good and For me, with my sort of international development background, I was terrified at the idea that we would get aid dependent and that we would, you know, in some ways be shackled by donations of international organizations kind of deciding what we could or could not do and could and could not experiment with in terms of sort of responding to local needs and so actually the idea of selling products that were made responsibly creating employment um, and creating a way of generating funds to sustain the activities of the charity made a lot of sense so that's really how we then got from it being a charity to having now a brand that supports the charity and then being kind of a brand in our own right. And then going on to that sort of, um, uh, fashion manufacturing production journey. So I think mean, that's sort of a bit of a summary of how we yeah. got there. Um, it's amazing. It's really amazing how something, how it basically
2: is happened so organically, but so successfully. Um, and the impact that you've obviously said, when you talk about local needs, um, that you've had, uh, with a community that desperately needed something and you've managed to achieve it. So that's amazing. I think congratulations, really congratulations. Um, What I would love to also know is for those people out there who are, gosh, you know, I'd love to do something similar. I think that's one of the questions that a lot of people always ask, I'm sure yourself, I'd love to be able to work with people. I'd love to be able to give back to people and do something similar. I know obviously now at this moment in time with COVID and everything, things are on a different kind of landscape, but what would you suggest to anybody out there who perhaps had that kind of um, notion of wanting to, to to do something on a similar level as yourself?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think when when we started it, you know, it was like, me. 2005-2006 really so it's been a long journey and it hasn't happened overnight so my sort of kind of first thing would be to say if you want to work with communities mm-hmm. you are at their service and it's a long haul journey you're not gonna go in do something and leave because that's the most dis- destructive thing that you could do um, and I think for me where my amigo came from was a place of listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I. You know, I I come from Italy, I come from a family that has always been quite socially active and quite politically engaged. And one of the lessons that I got taught from very little was um, the value of not talking, but listening. Um, And so I think that's really where my amico came from, sort of like being in that position of listening to what um, others were saying and and telling us that they felt they needed. And then thinking, okay, where can I be of service in that? So I think, um, although it's very hard if you've got one of that kind of nature where you want, you genuinely want to help to go in with your ideas and your thoughts and your solutioning and actually that, that really isn't how it works or so it, it hasn't been how it's worked for us. It's been really about, okay, I, for an accident of life, I happen to be in this position here um, mm-hmm. and I am in a relationship with you as a community and if I want to be of service to you, I really need to listen to what you as a community are telling me that you need and actually sometimes accept that you can't do much because you might disrupt some balance or um, mm. you know have an, an unintended negative effect so I think you kind of have always to question mm. yourself and the role that you're playing in that community um, yeah I think that's probably one of the sort of foundational things to think about if you want to start something like that I mean we I mean I constantly check in with myself and really see where it's something that I, I, you know, is it something that Paola feels what she wants to do? Or is it something that the community we're in is telling us that they actually need help with? Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. No,
2: that's really important because I do hear a lot of people saying, oh, I really love to make leather bags in one particular country without them actually thinking, well... Is that something that they're actually a skilled in is that something that they actually can produce and what will that do for them on the long term how will that actually benefit them so now that's really actually quite key for people to be able to understand but it's not just on a sort of manufacturing level that you're helping local um local communities and, and their local needs of people you've also um funded uh, 90 members of the Malaw- Malawian natural resources community um, with wild honey beekeepers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that as well?
3: Yeah, so that was an initiative that we did a few years ago. And again, it was another one of those examples where as being part of the community, someone came to us and said, there is this area in the north of Malawi where there's conflict between the local population and um, um, actually in wildlife. So there's a forest and people are... Um, cutting down the forest to use the timber because timber is valuable. Um, that means that the forest has got less space for elephants to roam, and it's increasing the conflict between animals and the local communities. Mm. So they had already thought of the solution. The solution was, what if we made the forest more valuable uh, so that you know you wouldn't chop it down, but you would treasure it, and that way you would preserve the forest the animals will be kept happily inside it. And, and you know, you kind of, you know, you, you wouldn't have an eco- a negative economic impact on the local community, but you'd sort of replace the um, uh, sort of uh, deforestation and the sales of timber with another activity. So then um, actually the community and, and us together came up with this idea, what if we taught people to be beekeepers, which is already a skill that is available locally and honey is produced locally. So it's not like we're introducing something weird and wonderful that has never been heard of. This is already done. But what if we trained beekeepers to to produce forest honey, which is actually very high quality and fetches a good price on the edges of the forest? This means that then the forest becomes valuable, more valuable than if you were chopping the trees down but also elephants don't like bees very much. So that means that the elephants stay a little bit more inside of the forest and are not kind of inclined to kind of push out and potentially um, encounter the the, the communities around the forest and create conflict. So it was just one where actually all these pieces had to come together for a good outcome to happen. So we had to replace... um, chopping down trees with another economic activity that would benefit the community. Um, But also we had to consider the environmental impact upstream and downstream of doing that. And there's absolutely no chance in hell that we could have gone in and done it ourselves. I mean, it really came from the community and working together. And and so what we brought were essentially a little bit of funds, a little bit of expertise, and a little bit of market access um, and access to a couple of people who knew a bit more What they were doing in terms of this particular initiative Um, yeah and that's sort of how it it all developed and and as a a charity we sort of did this and we helped set it all up and and then the community owns it you know if you know it's entirely up to them what they do with it so so yeah that was um that was a a fun one
2: it's so clever i mean it's it's such a clever idea it's like and you think you wouldn't think of it but then when you when you've actually explained it you just think wow you know that's such a natural natural um, law of order almost <laughs> idea of being able to keep animals in in their own kind of natural habitats it's so clever and everybody wins you know everyone wins um it's a fantastic way of being able to to help um, the community um, and I'm, I hope that some of the students who might be listening take that on board with their work because that's a great kind of almost a great case study actually.
3: Yeah uh, well actually it sort of it, it was a little bit better even because what we managed to do was um, so honey is a difficult product to export because it's classified as an animal product so the idea we had was how about if we then could open up the international market for this delicious honey that mm. is produced by the forest but actually it turns out that it's really difficult because it basically it's like the rules are as strict as they are with animal products, you know, as if you were importing beef. So that was difficult and could it be done. But actually it turns out that we what we could export and work with was the beeswax as a byproduct. So then working with the local refugee camp, we managed to produce the batch of um, Lip balms that were based on the beeswax, yeah. um, so then we cre- we were able to create a little bit more employment through mm-hmm. a byproduct, if you like. Um, yes, yeah, so and so yeah, so it was kind of quite a nice sort of circular experience uh, there. Yeah, but like I say, there's absolutely no chance we could have got to it without you know and it, it coming from the community.
2: So clever, and the lip balms—that's just
3: genius. <laughs> absolutely fantastic. <laughs> so genius
2: but there's so much talk now about circular economy um it really is so so important to be able to understand how that can evolve and you're, you're doing that on so many different levels um so you've given us this um, great example of of the wildlife with the bees and honey but you've also just signed up to um an app called rotation um so i naively only just found out about rotation myself I hadn't I wasn't aware of what rotation was and I suppose I guess this year has been perhaps the uprising of the hiring service the, of the products um, so tell me why you decided to do that what was the what was the importance of that for your brand
3: yeah I mean this is a big conversation I really don't want to monopolize it but I I, I think So basically there's just so much that we still need to do in fashion. And and really what we need to all do is produce and buy and consume less. And which is, I suppose it's a weird thing to say from a brand that needs to sell products to survive. But, But really what we need to think are ways that we can produce less and consume less and make our products last longer. And so obviously renting dresses and clothing for occasions mean, makes so much sense, um, you know, for uh, instead of buying things that you maybe wear once and then, you know, potentially end up, you know, the best case in a charity shop that we know has got a lot of downstream effects that, you know, can be negative, um, um, you know, without getting into that bigger conversation. So, so, you know, for us, that partnership was a like a real no brainer. Um, And I mean, COVID has disrupted us like everyone else a little bit in that we had plans of uh, pushing further our made to order model, uh, which means that obviously there's less waste and products are um, created for the customer when they order them. So um, we're already pretty lean in the way that we produce, but this means that we can control it even more Obviously, COVID disrupted that a little bit. The borders have been closed for a long time, so we couldn't really get that kind of um, transit um, happening as we would have liked. We had plans to and um, create a repair um, hub here in the UK, um, and again, COVID sort of like you know uh, went and sort of uh, destroyed all of that. Um, but but yeah, so so I think that was one of the things that we knew we could do um, in, in the circumstances, and and yeah, was was really you know really an brainer to, to to partner with. Um, that
2: rental, the rental kind of um, strategy, then that combined with an, an after effect of the repair and mend when things do go back to normal um that's kind of the whole process that you're looking at and in terms of repair and mend would that just be your products that you'd be looking at or you would you be looking at i'm just intrigued i think Mm. the business level because i always see that there's for me i feel like that model is exciting on paper but when it comes to it on a practical level there's so many issues that perhaps that
3: can arise yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it's a physical model, so you kind of need to be in the proximity of where that service happens. So, for example, in Malawi, we essentially repair anything. It doesn't have to be ours. Here, we would need to make sure that we've got the right machines to repair certain materials. We have the right skills to repair certain materials. So I think, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a series of logistical steps that need to happen. So I think it, the idea, I mean, to be honest, because of covid we haven't really kind of got that far down the line so i, I don't want to lie and make it sound like we've figured it all out because we haven't but it, it's definitely about um starting with our own products um to make sure that we can extend their life whether it's changing them up or just fixing them or repairing you know a, a tear or whatever that may be um and then certainly you know if logistically we can handle it it'd be great to open this up to others as well but I mean, I don't know that you could, you know, tailoring shops hasn't have existed for like thousands of years and mm. they make good business sense. So there's definitely ways to make them work if you can remove enough friction and enough barriers for people to find it simpler. But also the other thing is that people need to value their clothes and want to keep them and want to repair them. Because if you want to, then you know, like you've got a want on the one side and you've got a service on the other, and it's kind of like a, a much easier link. So, you know, it sort of kind of goes back to can we create clothes that are valued, that people love and care and want to keep and want to transform and want to change with them and grow with them. Um, And then that service is kind of like, you know, it's just a a really good match. But we have to create that desire first for people to stop consuming like, you know, and wanting new things all the time and actually value what they have already.
2: Absolutely thank you so much Paola that has been a fantastic conversation Um, and thank you for answering those questions so deeply. Um, I'm going to move on to our next panelist member now um, who is um, Aja but please Aja sorry I'm so sorry (laughs) it's Aja please pronounce please tell me how to pronounce it before I I hang myself.
4: (laughs) Uh, It's a soft J so like Aja like I think Mm -hmm. English people tend to go for the hard J but Mm -hmm. and it was funny because at my wedding a few of my friends were like I think we've been saying your name kind of wrong because they Mm -hmm. hadn't met my family before (laughs) and I was like "Ah, that's fine
2: (laughs) yeah I get that as well Um, I'm I'm gonna try my best I'm so (laughs) sorry but yes uh, it's a soft J I'm gonna keep reminding Mm -hmm. myself But um, welcome, 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 welcome. Very excited to have you here. Um, So just a quick introduction to everyone who is listening and watching. Um, We have, uh, for me, a very inspirational lady and uh, a writer, a a stylist, um, an author, an activist in all things sustainability, ethics, um, feminism, racism, and consumerism. So all the isms. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the, your time to join myself and the other panel members. Um, so I'd like to start off by actually linking in the last thing that Paula spoke about. And she was talking about how people need to be much more aware of how they look after their clothes and how they can consume and what they buy on a sort of fast fashion platform um, how we're constantly wanting more 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 and I feel like COVID has probably changed this kind of consistent need for more as well I feel people have kind of re- reassessed perhaps how they're purchasing and what they're purchasing and why they're purchasing and why they're purchasing, why they're purchasing. absolutely um, but what I found quite interesting um, one of the articles I was reading um, that you've recently written and And it's still very poignant today, even though you spoke about it in the first lockdown was, you know, why are fast fashion chains still really persisting and open today, even though we know the landscape is is fundamentally changing. can you tell me more about how what the importance you feel about fast fashion as someone who is so strongly um, an advocate of sustainability?
4: Yeah. So when I wrote that article, that was going into the first lockdown and I felt like the government and the billionaires were in a bit of a chicken fight. So the billionaires who own the fast fashion companies, which is something that everyone should really think about. We're in an area, we're in an era where we are beginning to look at, you know, outrageous extreme wealth and be more critical of that. And I think that that's an important thing to do, but a lot of times when people are extremely critical of people that tend to amass money in ways that, you know, comes off the backs of other people, they are thinking of Jeff Bezos. They are Mm -hmm. not thinking of Philip Green. They are not thinking of Stefan Pearson. Mm -hmm. Um, They are not thinking of uh, just off the top of my head, what is his name the The owner of uh, Inditex, which is Sara and yeah. that yeah. entire umbrella yeah. and so I think we really have to shift the narrative to talk about you know how much money is going into these brands, and like, I'm sorry, but if you are a <laughs> if you are sorry if you are a billionaire, you are in a position where you can um entirely Take care of your own business for a little bit. Mm. Now, one thing we know is fast fashion is an essential item. And so a lot of these stores didn't want to shut down because they need to keep the cycle going, which depends on people buying things that frankly they don't need in the beginning of a pandemic. But I would argue that that was ultimately super selfish and probably aided in the spreading of COVID-19. We have non-essential you know, stores that are open. We have retail workers who, let's face it, are not making good wages, but they're taking public transport where they don't have to be there. People are coming to work sick because we're in a pandemic and they're afraid to not. And so I'm sorry, but I think in a lot of chain stores owned by very, very wealthy people, their decision to not close sooner was ultimately extremely selfish. And I find that, um, in our society, we have a very hard time because of the distance and the ways in which these systems of colonization are set up. People have a hard time, I think, identifying with the people that make their products 3,000 miles away. However, people can identify with the girl next door who works in Topshop who's being forced to go to work in a pandemic or risk losing her employment. And so I wrote that out of a place of frustration because when the stores actually did decide to close, it was only after the government offered a package for the retail workers. So Mm -hmm. once again, you're pretty much just endangering the entire country for profit, which is Mm -hmm. gross because I don't need a maxi dress when we are going into lockdown. If you're anything like me, you've probably looked at your wardrobe during this entire time period and thought, Mm -hmm. I still have too much clothing. And I'm someone who has really, you know, kind of gotten it down to a place where I feel a bit more manageable. But Mm -hmm. currently, I pretty much alternate between two outfits. And so the desire and the push that we feel constantly in whatever our previous normal life was, has kind of disappeared, which has left people thinking about consumption in a way that we probably should have thought about when this entire system of fast fashion was kicking off. And I say better late than never, but it's never too late to look at these systems and to look at who is pushing and why. But at the end of the day, I tell people any system that makes someone at the top a billionaire and can't guarantee someone else a living wage is in the system that we should feel that we should uphold. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, it's about the jobs, but. Very few big businesses manufacture overseas to be altruistic. If they did, then we wouldn't continue to hear about factory fires, factory collapses every year, every year. And so, you know, we have to get away from this idea that all jobs are good jobs because they're not. And we have to get away from the idea that these companies that we've, you know, grown quite accustomed to because they've surrounded us throughout our life are without fault because the entire system is faulty and i think during the pandemic it really pointed out to people that this is not a system that actually cares about people it cares about profit
2: absolutely wow um i love how you kept it 100 real <laughs> You've laid it out there it's fantastic thank you you just laid it out there Um, And also, I guess, you know, going back to slightly what you were talking about is people hopefully also finding new brands that they can invest into that are more authentic, that do have um, a real understanding of what sustainability is. And they're not just using the word um, for this COVID-19 for 2020 and is actually embedded in their actual system. um, I mean, I kind
0: of...
4: I kind of felt like summer got canceled in this weird way. I mean, I still went out and did things, but you know, there were no festivals. There was no, you know, my, my partner and I were very lucky to get to a beach one day. Um, But it, it did feel like summer kind of got a little bit canceled. Um, But in some ways, you know, in the UK, people send spend a large amount of money on barbecue clothing, like clothing to wear to summer parties. And so, and not really having that same sort of environment. I think a lot of people were like, oh, I didn't buy five dresses this summer. Maybe I'll buy one from this small brand that I've always said was out of my budget.
2: Exactly, exactly. I'd like, that's how I like to think of it. from a non-biased perspective, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure Paula does as well. That's how I like to think of it. Um, You touched on there when you were talking about those who work within the factories the colonization Mm -hmm. Um, and I I want to talk to you a little bit about um, the decolonization within hope within the fashion industry Um, on an internal and external level within sort of fashion brands it's a big it's a big vast platform I know Um, but I I, I do see change I you know I don't I I do see some change happening um, but there is still a lot A lot to to do in terms of uh, on terms of the fashion industry making a big difference. Do you yourself feel that this is something that can actually ultimately be changed in 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 the long run?
4: Well, you know, it will ultimately change if consumers stop buying. You know, Mm. the thing is, people will often say to me like, "Oh, you know, well, you know, what about the garment workers?" But one thing we know about a lot of big brands is that the minute they decide to, you know, restructure people lose their jobs and their livelihoods. So like whether or not I participate in a system that I know is harming people is inconsequential because that system will continue to harm people. And so I think um, I could see it changing, but it is, it's a lot of moving parts. There's Mm -hmm. of course the consumer, there is of course the brand, there's the end of the life cycle. I mean, at the, you know, bare minimum, we, we recycle what 1% of current textile waste you know we need systems for people to recycle their clothing and whatnot you know like so there's so many moving parts and it sort of takes all hands on deck but i think once we sort of realize where we fit in in the puzzle we can kind of start to think about how we you know utilize our power and the new knowledge that we have so i am cautiously optimistic but at the end of the day if people just go off of fast fashion which I kind of see the beginnings of that happening, then there's, you know, that's going to change things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely one of the steps that people can do. They're listening out there and they're kind of into this whole, and I think obviously with, with Christmas coming up, it's also about resetting the mindset of how people perhaps purchase their Christmas presents for people and what they do, do choose to purchase for them. It's, is it going to does it have to necessarily be from amazon you know there are so many other great sustainable small businesses out there who do great um gifts or yeah um which which could be purchased instead
4: and i tend to do that on my platform on patreon i normally do a gift guide of like small businesses that you can support um and i do that on instagram as well but yeah i think the problem is in our society, I think we've, we've never had very honest conversations about wealth and power and money. And so a yeah. lot of people are sort of coming at it from this position of, I buy fast fashion because I'm poor. But like one thing we know is that if you make over a certain income in the UK, you actually qualify as like one of the top 10% of the global wealth earners, because this is a country that is very economically privileged. And so I think people really have to reroute their minds around thinking about the systems that they are buying into are you buying fast fashion because you are quote unquote poor or are you buying fast fashion because you've been trained to think that you need five dresses and that you can't wear the same dress to a wedding and that you know consumption is such a part of our society like you watch a movie and if anybody's having a makeover you better believe it's going to include a scene where a woman is swinging a bunch of shopping bags and like <laughs> new clothes, new me, you know? So I think we we have a society where people don't really talk about wealth and power, but I know as someone who was a former consumer of fast fashion that I've never been poor before in my life. I was just buying into the system because I felt like that's what I was supposed to do, you know? Um, And so- Yeah, I just feel like questioning consumption is a really, really great place to start if you're, you know, just an ordinary person questioning where you fall in the lines of privilege and power and whether or not you do have, you know, the privilege and power, not lecturing people that don't have the same privilege and power as you do, because I always say, like, it's not cool to be like, to like a single parent, like, oh, why are you shopping at, you know, Primark for your kids' clothing? That's what they can afford. But, you know, people in your circles at, your, at, your, at similar econ, socioeconomic status to you, really? those are the people you should be talking to, you know, yeah. because fast fashion isn't a system that's actually run on poor people. It's actually a system that's run on middle class and wealthy people, because if it were just people around or below the poverty line that were buying into the system, there would be no billionaires. Absolutely. So it's on all of us.
2: <laughs> no, totally. You're so right. You're so right on so many levels. And it really is. It really is about that whole kind of re educating yourself and really understanding that kind of the need versus the want in your wardrobe on a daily basis. Um, I'm going to kind of just wrap things up a little bit now and just ask you um, to kind of uh, talk about a uh, question that you discussed most recently um on your Instagram page actually which I found mm-hmm. fascinating and it was actually um you'd uh, a recent post that you've written about students had asked you about career advice yeah and you, and you have a number of students um asking asking you career advice and yes. you have your students who are in an extremely interesting position this year and about to leave next year um, what advice would you give to students leaving university who want to obviously go into the fashion industry or want to in, um, invest them more time right, in, in sustainability? Itself?
4: Realize that the, um, the, the moment of time that we're in is a moment of great transition for our entire society and the entire planet. And so the job that might actually make you the happiest might not even exist yet Mm -hmm. yet so keep an open mind you know don't set your sights on one company and be like oh if i work there that's the be all and end all because i can tell you as someone who formerly came from entertainment I got that dream job at 23 and it was horrific and so it was great to cross it off the bucket list but i was like wow i hate working here
2: um so it's brand what company was that for just out of interest
4: Mm, i'll keep that to myself but but realize that um so much of the fashion industry needs to transform and it's gonna happen slowly and you probably won't end up with your dream job right off the bat because That doesn't really happen for anyone except for people that were already rich from the get-go, you know? So realize that, you know, you might have to take a path that doesn't look traditional. I sure didn't. I mean, I worked in the television industry only because I couldn't afford to work in fashion. Like fashion for a long time has been a very privileged place to be. You know, I did the whole internship thing and looked around and realized, one, I was the oldest intern and two, everyone else's parents were paying their rent. How is that fair? You know, so these are systems that we need to fix within the fashion industry. And if you feel like there isn't a spot for you, don't worry. I felt that too. I'm 38 now and finding my dream job, you know? And so go easy on yourself. Recognize that the job that might be perfect for you won't be the thing that you'll get for a while. And also, if you have to work for a company that you know isn't great, don't beat yourself up. We've all had to do those jobs as well. Um, but be open-minded, read as much as you possibly can about sustainability in all sorts of different places. If you manage to work for a corporation, get them to buy you a subscription to things like EcoTextile News and like, mm-hmm. you know, Vogue business and like it's it's business for them, but use that to your advantage. Read everything, be curious, you know, be open to new things. Don't set your mind on one company because you might get that dream job and it might not be awesome. But I never thought if someone had told me you would be working in the fashion industry at this capacity, I never would have, I, I wouldn't have been able to wrap my mind around it because what I do didn't actually exist when I was 20.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And what an amazing um, transition you have had and so successfully as well, honestly. It's, um, it's such a pleasure to, to see how fantastic you're doing
4: Yeah. Can I, can I also say though, like it wasn't a fast thing. Like I was writing about fashion on the internet often for free and working multiple jobs at the same time. And this is why we have to question capitalism because it shouldn't actually be that hard to get a doorway. And you know what I mean? Like it shouldn't be that you have to work 72 hours a week and then do like the writing thing on the side until the world actually decides what you were saying has value and so we need to question all of these systems because it's not fair that only rich kids get to have the fun jobs right out of school that's not fair you know and as soon as we start to actually talk about this we can make a more equitable fashion landscape for everyone
2: absolutely thank you so much so so and that is exactly why, you know, um I've invited you guys onto this panel because the conversations right now I'm so excited by. Thank you so much for that. Really amazing. Um and coming to our last panelist, Amanda. And um, last but not least. <laughs> um, Amanda and I, we've known again, we've known each other for some time. Um I was very lucky to have the pleasure of working with Amanda while I was at LCF. Um Uh, A few years ago. So thank you so much, Amanda, for taking your time um, to be with us. You're
5: so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Really. Oh,
2: it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
5: Incredible program.
2: Um, So, Amanda, just to tell people a little bit about um, uh, your platform, Amanda. So you started um, the Sustainable Angle in 2010. Um, a platform which i would say is was way ahead of its time
5: (laughs) i'm going to correct you there it was nina morenzi our director who started the uh, organization and and i joined her pretty much from the get-go um so yes Yes. i'll let you carry on go on
2: (laughs) (laughs) i was coming to that but that's fine (laughs) i just worded it in a different way um for those of you who are not uh familiar um, I would say I'd describe your, I would say I'd describe it as as the quiet soldier and bear with me, <laughs> slowly <laughs> revolutionizing the fashion industry. <laughs> That's how I've described it. Cause I was thinking, how would I describe it? Uh, and within that, you also have the um, Fashion Textile Expo that initiates and supports projects which focus on sustainability in fashion textiles and related industries such as food, and and agriculture as well. Um, So amazing, amazing um, platform that you have um, built and created and supported. Um, So I want to just talk to you a little bit more for people who have never experienced the Expo before. Let's start with that because obviously we're in this COVID-19 situation but for me, what is so fundamentally important about what you're doing with the with the Future Fabrics Expo, is quite literally ch- changing the landscape of how people m- manufacture different types of fabrics. Can you tell us a little bit about the um, platform in a bit more detail? So when we all are back to normal, we can all come and experience it ourselves.
5: Absolutely, sure. So, um, yes, so we were founded uh, 10 years ago now, and we've been beavering away for 10 years, um, basically by trying to communicate our research and education through materials. So, that's why we begin with materials, because that's how you're going to capture the attention of anybody who's involved in fashion, because let's face it, materials hold their sort of promise of the birth of new. Products. So uh, we've amassed now, we have around um, over 5000 materials in our collection across all different fiber categories, which are the best practice that we can find in the world right now. We have a set of criteria, we develop tools, we are immersed in research around sustainability, both in materials and throughout the whole fashion supply chain. So basically we uh, we created this resource. So we have a virtual um, resource on our website as well. That's the sustainableangle.org. And we also have an annual expo, which you just touched on earlier, Ronke. So that's called the Future Fabrics Expo. And the one that we just held in January, which seems like forever ago now, (laughs) time has become like this weird... So the concept, anyway, it was, um, we, Nina and I were always saying, when is the fashion industry going to wake up to its impacts, um, a lot of which are rooted in in textiles and their production, biggest kind of impacts. When are we going to, when are they going to wake up and we're going to feel the tipping point for change? So for about four years, we've gone, the tipping point's coming, tipping point's coming. Well, it really did come in January. We had over 3,000 visitors to the Expo. We had queues around the block. It was like people queuing up for a nightclub. We had to do a one-in, one-out at one point in time. We have an incredible um, array of materials, as I said, but we also do a two-day seminar program as well, where we have sort of major thought leaders within the industry, also supporting people's understanding, awareness, and pushing our educational messages. So we do all kinds of um, installations in trying to help people engage with how fashion can be a a positive force for good. So, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, consumer interaction and stuff like that. And that's super important part of the whole puzzle. But it's just to get anybody who's involved in in creating product to wake up to the fact that their choices have knock-on effects back throughout the supply chain. Obviously, environmentally and socially, we know all of that. So it was, you know, all the installations that we do and the educational material that we put out there is focused on getting people to change what they do by understanding what the impacts are. So I'll give you one example of that, which is we'd had a a regenerative agriculture installation. And quite a lot of people were going, why are you telling me about farming and soil? When actually, of course, you mentioned in the introduction that all of these industries are related and interconnected. So how your your materials are grown and produced is absolutely critical in relation to their CO2 outputs and pollution outputs as well. So it's really about trying to engage people the best way we know how with those ideas and getting them to change um, their habits. So uh, through education, you can get people to realize an awful lot through hopefully engaging education and through those materials when they can actually touch them, feel them, and understand relative material impacts. So yes, that's what we're that's what we're focused on doing really through the expo.
2: Amazing, thank you, Amanda. You've uh, also answered quite a few of my other <laughs> questions. Which well, great, we can, we can drill <laughs> in. <laughs> the, not the, the, a problem. <laughs> no, not a problem <laughs> at all. But what I would like to understand a little bit more about the different types of fabrics that are on show at the expo, because I feel that people don't quite grasp the levels of science, quite frankly, involved with what actually can be created today. Um, Can you give us a little example, a few examples of perhaps some of the amazing um, uh, designers or perhaps um, fabric manufacturers, these brand new, I'd say quite up and coming brands as well coming through?
5: yes so obviously we we focus on materials first but we also showcase um product as well in our design journeys to give people an exemplar and you know paula spoke really persuasively about it being like a whole kind of philosophy with what she's doing so we pick out a few designers and we shine a spotlight on them particularly if they might have sourced materials with us to showcase how it's possible to be thinking about sustainable thinking, um, you know, holistically, not just changing one material, but also right the way throughout operations. So we do have that in design journey. So you can take a look on our website as well. There's some examples of uh, brands that, you know, we particularly like and little write-ups on our blog, et cetera. But when it comes to sort of material categories, we showcase innovations in every different type. So whether that be a cellulose type material like cotton, that's farmed it has massive impacts. If it's grown uh, conventionally, it's terribly thirsty and fertilizer and uh, pesticide dependent. So unless it's organically, unless it's certified organic, it's absolutely devastating for the environment and communities as well. Um, So we're obviously going to only show those outputs that can guarantee that they're involved in that regenerative farming that will allow the soil to become a carbon sink you know, so hence linking back to that. So it might not sound like an innovation, because in a way it's referring back to traditional farming methods, but it is, it is a, a, a relatively new thing in people understanding how important it is to understand the interrelationship between the natural world that we depend upon for our materials. And I think Paola's example there was an amazing exemplar of really understanding that systems thinking. So she's talking about bees in relationship to the elephants, in relationship to the forest, in thinking in a systems thinking way. And that's what we're trying to promote. So, for example, when she's talking about forests straight away, that statistic came up in my mind from Canopy Planet. We cut down 120 uh, million trees every year just to produce the feedstock for viscose fabric alone you know, that's not counting all the other industries. So we're very aware of that and work with organizations that can guarantee they're not clearing ancient and endangered forests. Um, so other material, if you're talking about innovations, we also spotlight really cool new material innovations that, sh- that show a way to a much more sustainable future through lots of different material categories. So that could be grown materials, but it could also be recycling technologies. Uh, I think reference was made to, I think Aja was saying, um, the amount of clothing that we waste, according to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, it is around 500 billion US dollars worth of textile waste is landfilled or burnt every year. I mean, just think of the business opportunity there, you know, I mean, how insane it is that we just keep doing this cycle, this sort of very linear take, make, waste dump. And we're not really thinking very intelligently about the systems and the the actual money that is held within our materials, you know? So, yep, we'll also spotlight recycling technologies, um, intelligent use of waste, and also um, shining a spotlight as well on the new emerging biofabricated group of materials, which are just about to become commercially available. You've probably heard about spider silk, probably heard about mycelium leather you know, all of these agricultural waste innovations, such as uh, Pinatex, for example. So they're starting to become commercially available now. We're gonna see them making a difference into what we're actually gonna be wearing within the next sort of five to 10 years. For sure, to take the sort of, uh, we're too too reliant on petrochemical-based materials. Pretty much everything, if you look in your wardrobe, there's a lot of it that's polyester and that's basically petrochemical, it's plastic or
4: your polyester
5: stuff is plastic.
4: <laughs> so. <laughs> I, read, I read recently that 60% of the fabrics on earth are polyesters.
5: Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. So, and, and all of the synthetics uh, make up two thirds of global fiber demand. So, uh, and, a, and a quarter of that is conventionally farmed cotton. So we put all our eggs into two really toxic baskets when it comes to textile materials. So we really have to, you know, a big message through the Expo is we need to diversify our materials. We need to think much more intelligently about reuse and recycling, as I said before. So to break that, you know, we're very, we are so dependent on the petrochemical industry. It's insane. Unless we decouple from that, both as a source of energy and as a feedstock for our materials, then we're never going to keep a lid on the 1.5 degree warming that the IPCC says that we need to. So the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change has stated that unless you know, we've got 10 years to keep a lid on that warming, or we set off a, a climate catastrophe that we won't be able to put a lid on. So it's a very urgent kind of need to think of, away from plastic. Okay, we've got a big cleanup job. We I think we all know because of David Attenborough what a hero he is, shining mm. a spotlight on single-use plastic And that is connected to our textiles as well. So it's kind of like we've got a huge cleanup job to do with that, but we shouldn't be using any more virgin petrochemical materials. Not at all, because we're just keeping that cycle going and we won't be able to keep a lid on our CO2 emissions if we continue. So that's kind of the big message we're trying to push. Sorry, I blathered on a bit there. No. Oh, Amanda,
2: (laughs) my God, I could listen to you all day. It's so, it's just the stats are staggering and your um your knowledge and your passion for it as well is so inspirational um no fantastic I could listen to it every day and anyone who doesn't hear what you are talking about and doesn't finish our panel session without without a conscious thought tomorrow about what they're wearing about how they're going to purchase things going forward is pretty much insane (laughs) because just hearing the, the stats they're phenomenal. Um, in terms of polyester, I mean, I'm not a huge fan anyway, because it's non breathable And I mean, who wants yep. to be sweaty all day, but so, you know, um, but it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Thank you so, so much. Um, and that kind of leads me to, um, my neck, my, my last question to you. Um, so when is the, the next, um, uh, expo dated for will this be on a virtual platform do you think so that we can well you know it we, in?
5: i know we've seen so many well we all know we're doing everything online and oh, as one by one all the main conferences in the world obviously have turned over to digital however as i said we would normally hold an expo in january clear clearly it's not possible to have any kind of uh, physical showcase there so of course we're exploring digital but we're going to push back till probably May or June we haven't um, decided an exact date with the hope that it will be a partial physical event Um, Mm -hmm. so we're we're going to to hope that by then some element of that will be possible because of course it drives people crazy we're doing a lot of workshops with brands I mean Mm -hmm. we've we're busier than we have ever been but of course, the one thing they can't do really is come uh, to the studio, which is where we do workshops and advisories and actually fill the materials, which is critical. So we're yeah. doing our best with good high resolution cameras and zooming in and doing virtual sourcing sessions. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's very, very difficult. Having that, the face-to-face is so important. And also what mm-hmm. we find at the expo is it's a real hub for like-minded individuals to connect and that's that's very hard to get that working digitally. You can say, oh, we'll do a little dating thing, but it's so hard because usually at the expo, it's by people mingling and seeing something and asking and being curious and going, what is that? How do you do that? Oh, I do this with this material. Maybe we should get together. There's so much of that goes on, which is really exciting to see. So with a bit of luck, a bit of physical, come kind of May, June, but it will obviously have a digital element as well. We have to start We're obviously deep in planning for that at the same time. So keep a lookout. Do sign up. Everybody who's listening, sign up to our um, newsletter. So just go on to the sustainableangle.org and we'll just keep you updated when we know when anything is happening. <laughs>
2: i think we'll all be waiting and um everyone should hopefully have been signed up already i mean i've i've been to a number of your events and i absolutely think they're fantastic and i always oh, kick myself you. for not giving myself <laughs> enough time because i i forget how how much there is on yeah. offer to look at and and talk to people and sit in the workshops and sit in the yeah. speaker section as well and talk to the designers so i kick myself for you need to give yourself so anyone who's really thinking of of going, um, it's you need to give yourself a minimum of say two hours, I'd say, to really, uh, experience Absolutely. it and enjoy yourself. Um, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank You're you. Welcome. That's fantastic. And and thank you to all of our panel members. Um, we are bang on time. Uh, <laughs> six o'clock, five past six exactly. Um, and so I'd like to open up the uh, platform to see if we have any questions. Um, So I've just got a question here from Thomas, and this is for all of you. Uh, The question is, what are your thoughts on consumption shifting to online shopping? Um, The dominance of one retailer, the expense of accessible, cheap, disposable goods sold. the impact of transport these are all lots of questions in one so let's just start with that one so (laughs) what are your thoughts on consumption shifting to online shopping um and and the dominance of perhaps one retailer
4: i think what thomas is talking about is amazon without naming them um so because (laughs) i you know i've I've been answering some of the questions just in case i get some like everyone it's the election as you know and i'm so Mm -hmm. super stressed so like If I have to leave because I'm sobbing, um, I was just like, let me just answer these questions so that if I'm like, I got to go. For me, I think Amazon is the, it's a part of like the monopoly system that we have to do away with, like these monopolies in all of our businesses, Walmart, okay? Like I could do you a class about how Walmart is actually one of the biggest like tax leeches on the American government, Mm. Um, Amazon is the same. And I think we have to be careful in how we critique these companies, because in some ways, for people that have disability, for people that are elderly, for people that live in the middle of nowhere, Amazon is a godsend. And that's great. That makes me happy that we have this sort of technology The problem is when all of us decide to start using Amazon for all of our every needs, Mm -hmm. that is when it turns into Jeff Bezos being headed in the direction of becoming a trillionaire. You know, so I generally stay away from that company because I have the privilege to be able to walk to the store and get what I need when we're not in a pandemic. You know, and I think for me, it's a question of, If you have the privilege to not be dependent on something like Amazon, then question why you are, you know, like I used to be the person that would go into a bookshop. And this was like when I was working three jobs, you know, and I'd see a book I want, and then I would go and find it online because it's cheaper there because I didn't have money like that. I'm now that person that can actually just afford to buy the book in the bookstore. And when all of us are buying all of our books from Amazon, Amazon becomes a monopoly and mm-hmm. the small bookstore on the corner shuts down. People yeah. go in to browse and go, oh yeah, really lovely place. And then they go and buy all their stuff online. So like it is a system where we have to look at, you know, why have we become so dependent on getting all of our stuff from one place? Yes, we all like a bit of ease, but that ease actually isn't good for a healthy economy where everybody has good, healthy jobs.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. That that's that. I couldn't have answered that any better, but I totally agree with you. Yeah, totally um, yeah. um, let me just see. So the other questions you said you've already answered. Thank you. Sorry,
4: I just gave my answer. But everyone else can answer.
2: No, no, no. no I thought i just, I'll just open them up to you. Oh, sure, I'm
4: totally
2: agree. Yeah, no, I was doing the same in the background. Really no. there. Yeah. Fantastic. So, You've all, what do you think the most effective way of encouraging consumers to buy less? Um, have, you seen, have you seen that one? Oh yeah, uh, Paola and Asia, you've both answered that one. And then Carolina uh, Kar- has asked, really great and interesting discussion and it fits in so well with my dissertation. My question for you all is whether education towards consumers is enough to drive the social change. What else can be done in terms of changing consumers' behavior for the better? Um agent I think mean, already you both answered that. Yeah.
3: I think there was it remind reading that question reminded mm. me of um something I mean, ages ago. I mean that's maybe 10-15 years ago, Jamie mm. Oliver did that school about um the, the that program about um going into schools and educating yep. kids about the food that we eat. Mm. And I remember him interviewing this kid who had never seen a potato or a carrot. And for me it's kind of the same thing. We as a society and, you know, me included, everyone, we've lost the connection with the things that we consume, um, food, what we wear, you know, what we put on our skin. Somehow people feel more connected with food and cosmetics, because I think there is that kind of immediate, you know, I'm putting this inside my body, I'm putting it on my skin, but actually your skin is the biggest organ in your body, and I think I talk to a lot of women who, often switch their perspective when they become mothers because suddenly they realize that there's something you know you kind of you know your body as a whole is a temple and you want to create something really healthy for your body but also you want to leave a good world for your family but, but but I think the earlier we start with that reconnection and education the better we really have lost it and I it's You know, I think it goes back to the things that Asia was saying around the society that we live in and capitalism and, you know, the powerful people that push certain messages and in a way have built obsolescence into products so that you throw them away faster and feel like you need something else. So, I mean, education is just so fundamental on so many levels and not just traditional school education, you know, awareness and um, yeah, completely agree with, uh, with that point.
5: Yeah, I'm going to second that. And it fits, it goes back to this whole thing that, you know, visitors to the Expo was like, why are you talking to me about farming and soil? When actually it's fundamental. It's fundamental to uh, the resources that we all take for granted. But it's just we've, uh, you know, our, our, our societies have become disconnected from those supply chains. Like you say, kids not even knowing that food grows in the soil you know, that kind of thing. And it's very important because when you understand that, you make better choices, you know, you don't have to be told, oh, what's sustainable? And you go, I don't even know what that means. You know, know, this is why we get a lot of greenwashing,
4: because I think the sort of fundamentals aren't understood. So I totally agree with you, Paula. Yeah. I also think that if we, you know, really teach people about soil and food and all of these things, people will start to make the connection that if your cotton crops are being sprayed with all sorts of, you know, chemicals, somehow that's gonna get into your food supply. Like this is not a system that is not just impacting in this corner and corner A and corner B. All of these systems are intrinsically linked to human survival.
5: Exactly, yes.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much, darling. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, On that note, I think that brings us to the end of our um, session. Um, Thank you all for joining us. Um, Neil, are you there? Making sure I don't
1: want to turn anything off in case. I am. Just, I know no. no <laughs> I am. I am here. Thank you all so much. It's been lovely to kind of hear from you all I'm so inspirational. A lot of the themes that you've uh, you, you've touched on, kind of like we talked about today. You know, particularly around kind of like um consumer behavior, and it's kind of like you know, is it the responsibility of the consumer? Is it the responsibility of the of the um the businesses? Is it the responsibility of the government? I mean, what what you know. Um, one of our speakers earlier, Barbara, from a, a, a lecture in marketing from the School of Business, very much said, you know, um, the onus is kind of put on the consumer, but actually what are the government doing to kind of like, uh, to kind of address the situation? And How do you all feel about kind of like where the, where the responsibility sits? Amanda, what's your thoughts?
5: Not enough, not enough. <laughs> You're probably aware of the fixing fashion report that was published in um, February, 2019. Um, and you know it was fantastic it went interrogating lots of british brands or a couple that didn't answer the questions. but mm-hmm. basically it was really that opened up that whole awareness onto the public eye line as well around you know the bad practices um, you know in our fashion supply chain going on in our country we often think it's stuff we don't see over the other side of the world and 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 the MPs voted to do nothing about yeah. the recommendations and everybody was going Ugh. it was one of those moments where you just go, you've got to be joking you asked for this report to be conducted and then you're just gonna go oh no the fashion industry can police itself well very clearly it won't you know so anyway there is another <laughs> There is another, um, uh, you know, uh, audit committee being undertaken right now and they're calling for evidence uh, to be put in before the 11th of November. So with a bit of luck, this time we will get some sort of engagement with it and some legislation will follow that stops, you know, um, companies like Boohoo doing Mm -hmm. what they just did in Leicester. It's shocking. It's the 21st century. It's almost Mm -hmm. unbelievable that that could happen. You know, when you're seeing it on the news, it's like watching some surreal film. It's like, no way. And they knew about this in February, 2019 and voted to do nothing about it. But yes. I, I know, also think I, that just, you know, it's...
4: I think that there's a bit of miseducation and there's a lot of, you know, greenwashing is being very, very accepted in like our media. I mean, I don't know if you watched um, that show about in the style last year but it was just they had an entire episode that was one massive greenwash. it was like we're sustainable because we didn't throw away these bikinis that are wrong we're going to do something with them and it's just (laughs) like we really have to educate the general public about spotting absolute nonsense because there's a lot of it going out it's being put on tv you know um the, the show about, there was one about Misguided recently. That mm-hmm. wasn't as bad, but there's a lot of like using sustainability as a buzzword in yeah. nefarious ways to yeah. sell more product. And until we squashed that, I thought it was very irresponsible, BBC 3, to make that program about In The Style and to allow yeah. that episode to be shown to the general public. I thought it was incredibly misleading, incredibly dishonest, because right now I think people you know, everybody's hearing what's going on with sustainability, but if we allow a lot of these brands to mislead the public, we don't get anywhere because people will go, people like my 13-year-old niece will go, oh, well, this brand's sustainable. Look, there was an entire TV episode about a bunch of absolute yeah. bullshit.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I think the other thing is, uh, we need to remember that fashion is political, like you know everything else. And so I think obviously today we you know, were all here sitting some more than others. For I feel, really feel sorry for you intrepidation for this results, but actually everyone is, and you know, it, and it's a big conversation. But we all have that power of voting. Uh, I mean, not all uh, many of us do, but um, you know, to and and it is a political gesture to have the kind of government and politicians that will take those reports and make something of it that will not always look out for the interest of some and not of others so you know there is power in in that and it's something that we all have available once we you know research educate ourselves connect with people that can help us understand this a little bit more to, to use that as well
1: Thank you. Uh, one of the key principles of the conference is myth busting. And you've kind of all kind of hit the nail on the head um, with that. The other the other um, key principle that um, I think we'll finish on, if that's OK, is practical takeaways. So if you if you could all kind of like um, if you all what's your kind of like top one or two practical takeaways for people So, kind of like. I know that I am such a fast, I, I'm, a, I'm a consumer, like, you know, I have a ridiculous wardrobe, I love my fancy shirts, you know, I, I'm trying to get better, but it's just something that I'm trying to break the habit of. And it is a habit, it's just, you know, it's the, it's the culture, um, it, it's just entrenched in, in, in life as, as kind of like, particularly as a young gay man um so I so say young I'm not that young but um but what's but what's your kind what was what in terms of kind of like trying to encourage people to think bif- differently and take on the responsibility because obviously as you said Amanda people are not government some people, some brands are not moving fast enough what can we do as a practical takeaway to make a difference and we'll go to it. We'll, we'll do the same. Oh,
5: well, Asha, do you want to go ahead? Because
4: <laughs> You're a baby face, first of all. So you're a young man. <laughs> um, the first thing I would say is really question why you like to buy so much. Like we have to look inside of ourselves and really sort of break down the narrative of consumption and how it's been fed to us. And then when you're really ready to like start to sort of move away from it unsubscribe from all those emails I used to get them they're very stressful you know any sort of push notification that is on your phone that encourages conspicuous consumption for things that you don't need take that off your phone unsubscribe on your email look at your social media look at who you're following what are the people on social media encouraging you to do? Are they encouraging you to make a world that you want to live in? Are they encouraging you to buy more stuff you don't need? You know, so question all of those things in your life. Because I can tell you, as someone who used to buy fast fashion, unsubscribing from all those emails freed up so much brain space for me. I didn't realize how exhausting it all was. And getting out of the cycle of fast fashion also freed up brain space for me. I felt like there was this constant insatiable urge that was really taking up a big portion of my life. And once I kind of started to step away from that, I began to really be like, wow. I always make the analogy that fast fashion is like eating sugar I'm from the States, we put sugar in everything. It's like our national pastime. So when you're in America, you love eating that sugar because it's in everything. When you move to the UK, you begin to immediately notice that there isn't as much sugar in a lot of the foods and you actually crave it. Like you're just like, ah, give me all the sugar. But after like a few weeks, it sort of tapers. And then now when I go back to the States, I can actually taste the sugar and I'll buy something that I used to really enjoy eating or get a dessert at a restaurant. And I'm just like, whoa, it's the same with fast fashion. When you're in the cycle, the clothing looks so fancy and so cool. And oh, I just need to buy that. And now that I'm not in that cycle, that clothing actually doesn't have the same allure. And when I go into the stores, I feel sometimes really grossed out by it. So I would say unsubscribe, take a break, and look at your social media and what you're being encouraged to do, and the things that are your pastimes. Thank
1: you. Those are all great. Yeah. Those, those, are, those are all great tangible tips that people yeah. can can people can actually physically do. So that's and I really love helpful. The
5: analogies we're still making between food and fashion. That's great. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I would say actually one good thing is we talked a lot of in sustainability about the need for transparency and traceability, and really understanding where does our stuff come, like right from the grown- Material that uh, that was generated. And I think there's actually, if you connect with uh, Fashion Revolutions campaigns, they did obviously Who Made My Clothes is the one they're known for, mm-hmm. um, which was obviously started um, after the Rana Plaza disaster. Now they've launched a new one is What's in My Clothes. So that sort of aligns quite strongly with our sort of focus on materials and that we don't have when you put look in your, the label of your clothes. You have no clue what it's made of. I mean, if you smell it, you might have a guess as to whether it's oil-based polyester or whether it's a natural fiber. But generally, there's so little information in our clothing, both from an environmental and social perspective. So I would be like, go and say to your retailer, go and say, "Um, I don't understand what is this material and who made that and where did it come from? And then if they they can't answer you, just put it back (laughs) and just say, oh, well, maybe I'll think about buying it when I actually know what it is you know, because yeah. I think there's great power in that, great consumer power to go oh, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't do that with food, you would yeah. not do that with food if you did not know what the, what the ingredients were, you know, or you know, country of origin really clearly and we just don't have that in fashion so consumer can have a lot of power in just challenging brands and saying, Um, you know kind of like what you do but I've really no clue what it's made of so no thank you
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree and you two, you both have said the things that I was going to suggest but I'm a very practical person so I'm going to give you two tips practical ones that I use for myself one is I made this rule for myself I check the label and if it says 100% polyester it's a no And I mean, I think life is difficult and we all have to make very, very complicated choices and it's stressful. So you kind of need to have a couple of simple decisions that is either a yes or a no. So for me, you know, you each can find their own. But for me, it's that one. If it says polyester, sorry, doesn't matter how great it looks. It's a no. Um, And so that's a simple one. And then the other one is. I mean, it might sound strange as a brand, but we've always been saying to people, only buy what you love. Don't rush it. Email us 20 questions about a piece of clothing that you want to find out before you buy. Because actually, shipping stuff out and returning it is Mm -hmm. expensive, is detrimental to the environment. There's a whole stack of things, you know, that are not good about it. So I'd say, if you see something that you really like, I know it's hard, but sleep on it one night, ideally too. If you still love it then consider it again but it's it's like that kind of as i was saying is that sort of impulse you know like you see it, you kind of feel like you need it. it's like that sugar rush mm-hmm. but actually if you can just have that one day break and you still love it as much then you can make that decision a bit better
1: thank you we touched on the dopamine effect in a session earlier today actually around kind of like that consumerism and um how if you tap into your creativity and come up with ideas instead of consuming or instead of purchasing it can actually have the same impact on you so it yeah. sounds sounds very similar to that um, and Ronky, you obviously kind of like you know you work with a lot of students kind of thing yeah. do you do you find that um, do you find getting them on board with the message obviously they're coming to study fashion fashion yeah. and fashion promotion as opposed to sustainability
2: yeah
1: how, how do you get them kind of on board with you know using some of these tips or what what yeah. how do you how do you get them to sign up to the concept of sustainability
2: well it actually with the, with sustainability we embed it from day one and we take it through all the way through until their final year um, regardless of whatever we say to the students if you end up wanting to do anything for in media in business or marketing or buying they all have a responsibility to understand how they're going to be impacting the fashion fashion industry on a sustainable level so we like to implement that from the get-go and i like to implement it in a very real and very realistic way so there's no sugarcoating of anything we like to have very open discussions and we tell and i tell them exactly what the real world is like and what they're getting themselves into and what the fashion industry is about so we have very open conversations and we're you know i show them very you know um censored um images if they want to watch they can if they don't want to they can leave the room but we keep it very real um and so it's embedded from the very beginning so that they're aware they actually start to make con- conscious decisions themselves as consumers so that it's you know it's not just about them writing and reading but they also start to understand how their um own purchasing habits are affected because you sleep st- they arrive and they've got their student loans and hey guys you know what I'm, I'm i've i've been down that road i'm not gonna say i wasn't you know when i was a student and you see the lights the bright lights of oxford street and you want to go and you're drawn in and then suddenly we start to start to understand the costings of the fabric of the of the garment and how much people are being paid and where things are made in the manufacturing process because I'm quite lucky in that respect from my background to understand how things are made and where things are made and the impact of particular areas of the world um so I do kind of pass that on to the students as well um but going back to the question that the others answered I I'd like to just throw into that um, uh, for anyone and probably close on this, but that question of why would you want to look the same as everyone else? And I think that for me is the only way that you can really achieve your own individuality is by really um, exploring what is out there on a charity shop level, what's out there on a vintage level, and what's out there on a small business level. And that for me is how you craft your own individual style from a, if you're wanting to do it, to, to explore how to become sustainable. From a an, an easier level for for students especially to understand because when you start to buy into what we sit what we say the high street offers you become a clone and on you know unless you want to to look like a kardashian and everyone else then you know that's that's your prerogative but if you really want to understand how to um and and why you shouldn't have to look like everyone else and have your own individual style, then that perhaps is is the the biggest way of being able to understand why sustainability is so, so important um, for for young people today to really start to explore. So.
4: I I agree with you there. I've always thought that there are certain stores, uh, Urban Outfitters, that just lay out the clothing in a way where they're creating a personality for you instead of Mm -hmm. allowing you to do that yourself. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Like, I don't want to be friends with someone who has to buy their cool. You yeah. know what? Like, you either, like, have it or, like, you're going and buying the entire outfit off the mannequin. And that's fake.
2: Like, work for it. So boring. So, so boring. You know, it's about going to this, going into Oxfam and finding a man's shirt and figuring out how it works for yourself. And wearing men's jeans. Why not? Why do they have to be women's jeans? It's just exploring and having fun, having fun with it.
1: Thank you all so much. Thank you for bringing your individuality, uh, your creativity, professionalism, insight, everything to to this panel discussion. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, Aja,
4: would you... Do you all want a poll update?
1: Yes, please. It's it's a good one.
4: Yes. We've got um, Biden lead in Michigan by a very tight margin of 45,000 votes. Georgia apparently is swaying, possibly in his direction. We will get that tonight. So... uh, I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't a positive update.
2: I'm cautiously
5: optimistic. optimistic. Leave on a high. Leave yeah. on the again. Leave on
3: there, a high.
4: There's
1: there's there's still hope. There's still hope. But thank you for your time and your support, and for and for sharing and for sharing your stories and, and um and your practical tips as well. They make a massive difference. They'll make a massive difference to our audience. This has been recorded. We'll be sharing it on our YouTube channel afterwards, so it will be shared with kind of like beyond this event, and um and hopefully it'll make a difference to to, to the future. I'm sure it will. Um and um, I hope to see you again uh, at one of our events, hopefully in person at some point in the future.
4: We'll Let's hope. Thank you very
1: much.
5: Thank, Thank you everyone. Thank you so much, you so much really Amazing. So great to meet you. Thanks,
0: ronky Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sustainability Research Pod. This is one of a series of podcasts where members of the Sustainability Research Group hosted at London South Bank University share their work and work with others in the sustainability field. Please share and subscribe to wherever you find your podcasts to automatically receive more episodes.